It is a great truth to be reminded of in the midst of our struggles that he is not absent. He is present with us in the midst of those struggles. And so we've been in a series now for several weeks called The Struggle is Real. And uh, so this morning we're going to talk about the fact that marriage is hard. A couple drove down a country road for several miles not saying a word. An earlier discussion had led to an argument and neither one of them wanted to concede their position. So they just sat there in silence driving. As they passed a barnyard full of mules and pigs, the husband asked sarcastically, relatives of yours? To which the wife replied, yep, (laughs) in-laws. Someone observed the following regarding marriage. They said in the first year of marriage, the man speaks and the woman listens. In the second year of marriage, the woman speaks and the man listens. In the third year of marriage, they both speak and the neighbors listen. That probably is a little too, too true if we're honest. After a lengthy quarrel, a woman said to her husband, you know, I was a fool when I married you, to which he quickly replied, yes, but I was in love and didn't notice that until till now. Uh, you can file the following under what started the fight. Uh, a man asked his wife, he said, where do you want to go for our anniversary? She gushed, uh, somewhere we haven't been in a long time, to which he replied, how about the kitchen then? So don't, that's a bad, don't say that. A woman was looking in the bedroom mirror. She's not happy with what she saw, and she said to her husband, she said, I feel horrible. I look old, fat, and ugly. I need you to pay me a compliment right now. To which her husband replied, the good news is your eyesight is absolutely perfect. So let's do that. Take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 4, again for the sixth series message in our series, The Struggle is Real, titled Marriage is Hard. So we're planning out this series, and I ask our staff, I say, hey, what are some things we should absolutely cover? And every one of them said, you need to preach once on marriage. I said, why? They said, because marriage is hard. And so we're going to look at James chapter 4 this morning uh, and walk through the struggle that happens with conflict in marriage in James chapter 4. So uh, James chapter 4 is a passage I taught through about four years ago, but I want to go back to it not only to add fresh insight, uh, but also because it is the foundational passage in the Bible as it relates to the issue of conflict. And so even though we're going to make a lot of application related to marriage, this, uh, these principles are, are universal. And so if, uh, if you're here and you're single, you're single again, or you're widowed, and you think, well, how does this relate to me? Listen, these principles on conflict govern every relationship with your kids, with your grandkids, with your boss, with your neighbor, with your spouse, with your parents. Uh, these are universally uh, true. And so here's one of the side note uh, this morning. If something is biblical truth, or if it's tradition, we have a hard time separating that. Here, here's how I know the difference. Truth will apply in every context. Uh, Truth is not limited by culture or context or any point in time. Truth transcends all of those things, context, culture, and time. Tradition is situational. And so because this is biblical truth, it is truth that will apply to every single relationship, even though we're going to make a lot of application as it relates to marriage. So we're going to read here in James chapter 4. I'm going to ask you to forgive me my voice. I've been sick most of this week. But uh, James chapter 4 verses 1 through 10 this morning. Uh, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you don't ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But 
He gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, uh, submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And so this morning we're going to walk through again what I consider the key foundational passage as it relates to conflict in relationships, and this will apply to every single relationship. Uh, It certainly applies to the context of marriage. Uh, Do you know what they call a person who never experiences any conflict in relationships? You know what they call a person like that? Lonely, right? Like if you have relationships in any facet, you have walked through conflict. You have been a part of conflict. So this is going to be a fantastic passage to understand some principles this morning. And here's what I understand. The first principle in this passage is simply this. Conflict is an opportunity, not an obstacle. Conflict is an opportunity, uh, not an obstacle. Now, that sounds like an odd statement because opportunities are viewed as positive and conflict is viewed as negative. And so when you hear me say, hey, conflict is an opportunity, you're thinking, yeah, to hide a body, right? But like other than that, I I view opportunities as good and conflict is bad. And so how in the world uh, do you make that reality? Well, I'm going to argue that the principles in this passage are going to prove that conflict is an opportunity to grow. And here's why. Conflict draws out what is truly in our hearts, and when that happens, it's an opportunity for us to realign our hearts with the heart of God in that relationship. And conflict draws that out and exposes our hearts so clearly uh, so that we can realign our hearts with the Father. In verses 1 through 3, James does not waste any time bearing down on what the true issue uh, is at heart when conflict is exposed in a relationship. And what he tells us is that the relationship or the issue is not the issue at all. Uh, So many times we get hung up in cycles of conflict and and I want you to agree with me and I want you to come to my point of understanding and I want you to admit you were wrong and and if we could just settle the details of this issue, the conflict would go away. Listen, nothing could be further from the truth because here's why the issue that you're fighting about is not the issue at hand. The issue that you're fighting about is just the symptom of what's going on in a heart that is engaged in conflict. James chapter 1, he leaves no questions about this. He says, listen, that's not the issue at all. Look at James chapter 1 again. In James chapter 4, I mean verse 1, he says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Now, that's a question. How in the world? Did this conflict start? We've been not not getting along for for so long. I don't remember where it started. I don't even remember what the key issue was. And so how, how did this happen? What's going on here? Well, he answers his own question. Do they not come from, here's what we want to say, the other person, right? Like they did, they said, fill in the blank. It comes from them. If they had not, then I would have not, and the whole conflict would have gone away. No, what does he say? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members. In other words, what he's saying is this, the issue in conflict is not the issue. The issue in conflict is that your heart craves something the other person is not providing, and so therefore, it is on like Donkey Kong, all right? That's what he's describing here. And so the reality is, uh, the reason it's an opportunity to grow is because conflict in relationships draws out of my heart what I did not know was even in there before the conflict started in the first place. Now, if you're listening, say amen. Do not be deceived into thinking 
that the issue you're fighting about is really the issue. Because if you're deceived in thinking that, you'll spend an exponential amount of energy trying to make sure that your set of facts, your perspective, comes to the place where it is recognized as what is right in this conflict. Now, here's what happens. I've asked people this all the time in marriage counseling. I've said, hey, if the other person would right now lean across to me and say, you know what, you're right, would you feel better on the inside? No, I wouldn't. I'd still be mad. I'd still be angry. I'd still feel the same way. And so the reason is because of this, is because conflict rages. Why? Because I have a desire inside of me that I want you to meet desperately, and when you do not meet it, we are going to go to war, and I'm going to extract out of you what you're not giving me. James says, hey, you got conflict? Where does it come from? It comes from your own desire for pleasure that wars inside of you. Now, the mark of a couple who doesn't understand that is this. They'll spend an uh, exponential amount of energy trying to get the other person to agree. They'll they'll go to a counselor and spend all of their time tattling on the other person so that the counselor will look at that person and go, hey, they're right, you're wrong, conflict solved. They can walk out of there totally uh, self-justified and and justified in their punishment of the other person in that conflict. And what happens is this. When a person is so focused on the external issues that's going on, what that tells me is this. They want to be more than anything. They want to be right not reconciled. They want to be right, not reconciled. They want to justify their sinful anger and unforgiveness as opposed to walking through the process of confessing their pride and confessing their desire to be right and not honoring Christ but honoring their own desires. Now, here's the reality. You'll, you'll justify it. You'll argue. You'll say, yeah, but you don't, you don't fill in all these kind of blanks. Listen, that doesn't change the truth of God's Word. In James chapter 1, he said the reason there's a war on the outside is because there's a war going on on the inside. Now, is it wrong to want something out of my marriage? Is that horrible? Is it wrong to want to be loved? Is it wrong to want to be respected? No, listen, the Bible in Ephesians chapter 5 says those are some things that should happen in the context of a marriage. And so those aren't wrong things. Uh, The problem is this. When a God-given desire grows into a self-centered demand, uh, that's the place, that's the pattern where conflict happens in a relationship. Now, I've taught this before once. Uh, Some of you weren't here at that time. Some of you have forgotten it. You need to be reminded. We learned through repetition. Uh, Here's the formula for conflict according to James chapter 4. You should write this down somewhere. doesn't matter if it's your spouse, your kids, your grandkids, your neighbors. This is the pattern that goes on in every instance of conflict. Uh, Desire, demand, punish. Desire, demand, punish. Say that with me. Desire, demand, punish punish. Look at verses 2 and 3. You lust. Do not have. You know what lust is? I have to have this. But we pigeonhole lust into one corner, uh, one, one arena, and, and listen, that, that's a part of lust. But can I just say, lust is wanting something more than you want Christ. That's what biblically lust is. I have to have this. Uh, even if I dishonor Christ by sinning against you in conflict, I have to have this. So verse 1 talks about desire. Verse 2, lust is, I have to have this desire met. And at that point in time, it goes from God-given desire to self-centered demand, is what he's saying there in verse 2. Keep reading. And so what happens? Uh, he says, you lust and you don't have it. They didn't meet your desire or your demand. So then what happens? Uh, So he said, you murder and covet, and you still can't obtain. You punish the other person 
Uh, you don't have it, and so what do you do? So you keep fighting and you war, yet you don't have because you don't ask. He says you don't ask, you don't receive, because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasure. What does that mean? He says you keep wanting something, and the reality is this. Listen, you're not fighting in your marriage because you're like, you know what? I'm just going to keep warring here until you become more like Christ. I'm at war here because I want something for you. No, no, no. Verse 3 says this. The reason God is not producing in that relationship what God should produce is because your desire is a self-centered one, according to verse 3. Verse 1, I have desire. Verse 2, I have to have it met, lust. Verse 2 and 3, if you don't, we're at war. Desire, demand, punishment. And so let me make this uh, as simple as I can. The clearest indicator that a desire has grown into a demand is the presence of punishment. Let me repeat that. The clearest indicator that a desire has grown to a demand is punishment. You know what I found in my own life? I'm incredibly dishonest about the fact that I'm demanding. And I, that, that's not a demand. I didn't make a demand. I didn't mean to come across that way. But the reality is, uh, through the conflict, I can no longer deny that that desire has now become a self-centered demand. Why? Because the objective reality of conflict. You didn't meet that demand, so I will punish you through conflict. Now, here's where it gets even trickier. Sometimes the demands we make are not even the real issue. They're not even the real affections of our heart. The demand, we hope, satisfies an affection of our heart, but the demand's not even the real issue. Uh, biblical counselor and author Tim Lane offers the following four typical desires that become all-consuming demands. These are fantastic. Uh, listen to these four things he lists. Uh, one is comfort. I want, must have, and deserve rest and relaxation, and you had better not hinder my ability to get it. Approval. I want, must have, and desire approval, and so you better give it to me. Success. I want, must have, and deserve to be successful, and I'll do anything to achieve it, even if it's tearing down someone I love. Control. I want, must have, and desire control, and I'll do anything to have it. Now, we could add some other things to the list. I've been counseling a long time. There are some other things I could add in there. But here's my guess. If you pause right now and recall to mind the last serious conflict you had or a season of conflict that you have walked through, my guess is this, um, that most of the issues would fall into one of these four categories. That at the end of the day, you just you thought the issue was fill in the blank, if they, you know, whatever, and the root issue going on, the affection of your heart was control or approval or acceptance or success or peace or comfort, and that person couldn't provide it, and so that became so uh, insatiable that you punished them and their lack to provide what only God can do. Now, if you're listening again, say amen. I want you to hear me clearly this morning. No other sinful human being can consistently provide those things for you, even your spouse. This idea uh, that, you know, I got married and they complete me. Listen, two broken, sinful people will never perfectly complete each other. That's why God gave us a perfect Savior to complete us and find our identity in Him. And He alone satisfies the affections of our heart. And until He does, you will try to extract from someone else what they cannot provide in your life. You see, the problem is not this. The problem is not your spouse or the other person. The problem is Christ hasn't satisfied the affections of your heart, so you're treating your spouse like a Savior. Newsflash, your spouse, as wonderful as they may be are a crummy savior. 
<laughs> some of you are like, praise God, somebody said it, amen. <laughs> Woo, right? About to look out, somebody's flying a hanky out there. Come on, come on. And what happens is this, people don't understand that. You know what happens? They come into a counselor like me, like someone else, and they just say, I want you to fix my marriage, and here's the problem. We can, we can resolve issues and settle through surface kind of stuff, but until a person comes to understand their identity in Christ and they're satisfied in him, they'll try to extract from a person what that sinful person cannot provide, and conflict will never go away. Because they're treating their spouse like a functional savior, and your spouse cannot produce in you what you desperately need, which is a satisfied heart. Conflict is an opportunity to grow. Why? Because it forces us into self-examination. And here's, let's just be honest. In conflict, we don't look at the other person and go, hey, you're such an opportunity to grow. Thank God right now that you're being difficult, right? Like I don't look at my kids when they're disobeying and go, hey, thank you for the opportunity for sanctification as a parent, right? I never, I never say that. Because what we view in conflict is the other person is an obstacle, not an opportunity. We view them as something that happened that shouldn't have happened when the reality is simply this. The people in your life who are difficult are gifts from God because they're pathways to sanctification. Why? Because difficult relationships draw out of your heart what you did not even realize was in there. And all of a sudden when that happens, you have an opportunity to grow or you can just blame the other person over and over and over. So the next time you're in a heated conflict with your kids, your grandkids, your spouse, your neighbor, just look at them and say, thank God you are such a gift. Amen? Now, if it's a kid, wear them out, and then, pro- then afterwards say, hey, you're welcome. You're a gift, right? So conflict is an opportunity, not an obstacle. Why? Because conflict draws out of our hearts what we did not even realize was in there. And when that happens, guess what? We can realign our hearts with the Father's heart in that relationship. The Bible teaches that changes in community projects and relationships are crucial uh, in Conflict draws out of our hearts, and relationship draws out of our hearts. Either A, what we did not know was in there, or B, we knew it was there, but we just tried, tried to manage it by trying to manage the other person, how they behaved. But you can't manage a spiritual problem. Did you know that? You cannot tame sin. It tames you. That's why the late John Owen said this, be killing sin, or it will be killing you. One of the best books ever read personally on marriage is written by Paul Tripp, and it's a fantastic title. Uh, the title is called, What'd You Expect? Right? Well, what a great title for a book on marriage. Two sinful people in a fallen world, uh, and then we think it's going to be a fairy tale. And he's like, what would you expect? And so Tripp writes in this, uh, talking about the power of relationships. He says, I got married at 20 and was all too sure of myself. I was convinced of my character and maturity, and I thought marriage would be easy for me. It wasn't. It didn't take long for the true selfishness and impatience of my heart to be revealed. You see, a relationship drew that out. But I worked to deny what God was revealing. Just blame the other person. It's their fault. It's their fault. It's their fault, right? I got good at persuading myself and my wife that I was right and she was wrong. But God was unrelenting in his pursuit of me. And my wife was committed to being honest with me. That relationship drew out of him. Here's what he said. I love this. He said, I went down kicking and screaming until I began to face the one thing I had fought so hard to admit. I desperately needed to change. Let me paraphrase that paragraph. The conflict in marriage beat out of him what he did not realize was inside of him. And so conflict is not to be avoided. Why? Because it's not going to happen on this side of eternity. 
right, with sinful people walking around doing sinful, selfish things. Listen, conflict is not an obstacle. It's an opportunity to grow in godliness. Conflict is a pathway to reveal out of your heart what you did not realize was even in there. So what's the second reality? So after that we understand that truth, um, what next? Well, in this passage, we see next principle is this, is that self-examination should lead to confession. Like once the conflict in that relationship draws out of my heart and I have to get honest that the fact that all it drew out was a a self-centered demand and that demand wasn't met, verses 2 and 3, so I punished you, verse 3, that that realization should lead me to the point of confession where where I'm humbled that what was inside of me, that God would still love me and extend uh, grace to me. And so here's the question you have to ask yourself when it comes to conflict in a time of self-examination. The question is, and this is so, so important. Here's the question. What do I want right now more than Christ, and how am I acting to get it? What do I want right now I have to have it. Remember lust in verse 2, i got to have it. What do I want right now more than Christ? That's the definition of lust. And how am I acting to get it? James exposed the hearts of his listeners in verses 4 and 5. This is not seeker sensitive, but look, look what he says in verse 4. Adulterers, adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Now, why in the world is there an illustration here uh, about adultery? Here's why. Because uh, everyone who belongs to Christ is a part of the church. And one of the descriptors in the Bible of the church is called the Bride of Christ. And so Christ is the Bridegroom. And so what he says is this, when I want something, which is my own selfish desires, more than I want Christ, I am an unfaithful spouse to Christ, is what he's saying. And here's the deal, if you don't get grieved by that, then guess what? You will never fix conflict. You know why? Because when I come to the place and say, oh, the issue here at hand is not what they did or what they didn't do that I thought they should have. The issue is that I have been an unfaithful spouse to Christ himself, and once I admit that, that I want what I want more than what he wants, that should bring me to the place of humble confession. The word confess in the original language, it means to agree with God. It means to agree with God. Now, why is that so crucial in solving conflict? Because here's the deal. When I want, let me give you another word, for wanting something more than you want anything else, even more than Christ being honored. There's a word for that, right? Selfish. I want what I want, I want these needs met. I want this desire met. As a matter of fact, even if it, uh, the way that I go about getting it met makes me sinful and I'm unfaithful to Christ, I want that more than I want Christ exalted in my marriage. You know what that's called? That's called selfish. And if you're a selfish person where you want more than what you want, more than what Christ wants in your marriage, listen, conflict will destroy your marriage and the bitterness that happens will defile every person around you, including your children. That's why he gives that illustration there. You say, what if I come to a place where all of a sudden I've just realized for the first time that, oh, the great sin in my marriage is not what I said to them or not what I did to them or, or how I respond. Listen, the great sin is that I wanted what I wanted more than I wanted Christ. Verses 4 and 5, I've not been faithful uh, to Christ. What happens then? Why is it so crucial? Because when you get to that place of honest confession that ultimately conflict is spiritual adultery where you want what you want more than Christ, uh, look at verse 6. Where should that lead you? Verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. Listen, the proud person who says, hey, the issue is what you did. The issue is what you said. That person's too prideful to humble themselves. And the Bible says this, God resists the proud. And some of you have been in seasons of conflict so long with your spouse or your kids or some person in your family that, that you've just come to a place where you've just justified it. You've become proud about it. It wasn't me. It was them. And guess what? God resists the proud. You say, well, I can fix this by myself. Let me just ask you a question. How's that working for you? You see, the answer is, it's not. You know why? Because you don't have grace flowing through your life to change. Grace doesn't just save us, it empowers us, it changes us. That's a whole different sermon about empowering grace. I don't have time for that. The reality is this, if grace isn't flowing through my life, the Bible says that God has grace upon grace for us. For every situation, God has grace upon grace. And so once the grace of God stops flowing through my life, I'll never change. You know how to not get grace flowing through your life? Be a proud person. You know what a proud person says? It wasn't my fault, it was their fault. No, the Bible says in verses four and five, you were guilty of not being faithful to Christ in conflict. And when I come to that place, I can say, Lord, I desperately need your grace and God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. So, Lord, uh, forgive me if I've been unfaithful to you in this conflict. And then I humble myself, and grace starts flowing. And here's my experience. When I'm overwhelmed by grace, I can't help but want to extend it to someone else. I can't help but extend it to someone else. And that diffuses uh, the conflict. Self-examination should lead to confession, which is the precursor for repentance, which gets grace flowing through my life again. So here's a very, very important question everyone should ask in the midst of conflict in relation to what the Bible's teaching in verses four and five. So if you're listening, say amen. Whose sin am I more bothered by, mine or theirs? And if the answer is theirs, listen, I'm not a prophet, but I do work for a nonprofit. So hear me this morning. If the honest answer is theirs, the conflict will not end. It will not end. It'll go on and on and on, and you'll justify it. You know why? Because in your own self-righteousness, you've said, uh, listen, they, were, they shouldn't have when all the time, according to verses 4 and 5, when I look at myself vertically, I shouldn't have. Because the issue is what they, they did or didn't do. The issue is I've been unfaithful to Christ. God gives grace to the humble, not the proud, who has to be right at all costs. And so, so now what? So I realize that it comes from, with me, the conflict is not the other person. It's my own desire that's turned into, grown into a demand. The demand's not met. I make war. And then I realize uh, uh, the war keeps going on. Why? Because I justify it. It's your fault. You did this. You did this. Verses 4 and 5 say, no, the issue is not what they did. The issue is you've been unfaithful to Christ. I come to that place. I recognize that. I humble myself. Grace starts flowing through me. But, but here's my experience. You ever thought you had a conflict resolved and then it sprang back up again? You ever thought, oh, I'm so glad that's behind us and then a little trigger happens and you're like, that's not behind us, that's right here in front of us. I think that's harder for women. I heard a guy say one time, I thought this was so insightful. He said, uh, wives, you, you just, relationships are a little more circular, guys are linear. You know, listen, a guy can get in a fight on a basketball court, by the time they get to the water fountain, it's a joke, right? Women, not so much. Guys, that's why your wife doesn't get uh, hysterical. She gets historical. Amen? What happens is this. 
is that we put the conflict behind us and we thought it was a done issue, not realizing that we have a heart bent on selfishness and so we don't stay in this place of continual repentance. And then pride begins to creep back in and pride creeps in and all this, the cycle starts over again. So what do I do once I come to that place where I'm grieved that I've been faithful to Christ and it's not their fault, it's my fault, it's my desires, my demand, all that stuff. Uh, here, here's the last thing. Pursue peacemaking with great effort. Uh, Ken Sandy is the founder of an international ministry called Peacemakers. They help churches and individuals resolve conflict biblically. And he, uh, Ken Sandy said in, in decades of dealing with conflict biblically, he said there are three kinds of people when it comes to conflict, and we would all fall in one of these categories. He said there are peace fakers, peace breakers, and peacemakers. Uh, he said peace breakers are prideful and power up if they don't get their way, so they blow up and the other person just cowers, okay, okay, just do it your way. Peace fakers avoid conflict at all costs and stuff it. That's the ostrich approach, right? Now, I've said this many times. You've heard me say this. Um, the problem with that is this. You can't bury something that's alive. And the reason I know that's not because I have a seminary degree, it's because I've watched Pet Cemetery. Amen? Like that thing comes back more jacked up than the first time, right? But some of you try. And then he said there are peacemakers. And here's he said, a peacemaker sees conflict as an assignment not an accident. And so what's the assignment? The assignment is uh, to examine my own heart and identify unfaithfulness to Christ and then action steps that lead me in a pathway of repentance so grace can start flowing in. I can really change from the inside out. Now, so here's the thing. So what does that look like practically? Like what, what, okay, so, so I get what you're saying. Practically speaking, what does it look like to be in that path of repentance continually so pride doesn't creep back in, the cycle starts over? Well, here's the good news. The Bible is so practical. You don't have to wonder what it looks like. He gives a checklist in verses 7 through 10. This is what it looks like to be in a continual cycle of repentance in a relationship instead of a prideful person. Uh, read down through verse 7 10, I'll, and I'll come back and listen. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And so, let me just walk through this checklist that he gives us here, uh, these steps. First step is this, uh, submit to God. That's what he says right off the bat in verse 7. Therefore, submit to God. What does that look like in a cycle of conflict? Lord, whatever you want to do, in my own heart, I'm surrendered to it. Lord, whatever sin you want to convict me of, whatever changes I need to make, whatever things you want to expose in my heart I wasn't aware of, God, God whatever you, whatever, Lord, I'm, whatever you want me to do, Lord, I surrender. Now, if we're honest, in a season of conflict, most of the time our prayer goes like this, Lord, have your way in that other person's heart. Amen? God, you know their heart and it's wicked. Deal with it, Right? We're like the psalmist. Break their teeth, oh God, right? That's in the psalms, by the way. No, listen, submit to God. says, God, whatever you need to do in my heart, I'm, I'm, listen, I'm surrendered. Then he says, resist the devil. What does that mean? It means this. It means I no longer allow sinful thoughts, to, uh, sinful attitudes and actions to dominate my thought life. Where, where, does, where does strongholds happen, according to the Bible? In my thought life. You know what the enemy's going to do in a season of conflict? Don't, don't, don't. Listen, it's their fault. They shouldn't have done that. It's not you. It's them. You were right. They were wrong. Wait, you know, look, wait. Look, look, here's what happens. Uh, you know, hey, whenever, whenever you're ready to apologize, I'm here to listen. Right? 
Uh, whenever you want to admit that you're wrong, I'm all ears. And the enemy reinforces that. That's right. That's right. Resist the devil. Then what's he say? Draw near to God. What does that mean? That means this. If you just grit your teeth and think, I'm just going to resist the devil, guess what? You're going to lose over a point in time. But when you draw close to the heart of God, when you say, Lord, I, more than anything, I don't want to be reconciled with that person. Uh, more than anything, I want to be reconciled with you. Because if that happens, then that will be the overflows, that relationship. So you draw near to the Father. And you cling to him and say, Lord, I am desperate for your grace. I cannot fix this. I need your grace to flow through me. Then what's he saying uh, there in verse 8? He says, cleanse your hands. What does that mean? Uh, cleansing your hands is the idea that outward behavior needs to stop. Listen, sometimes to resolve conflict, the first thing you should do is stop saying sinful things to the other person. Now, that doesn't always change the affections of your heart, but just stop sinning against them with words and actions. Cleanse your hands. And then he says in verse 8, purify your hearts. What is that? That's inward attitude that needs to change. The greatest inward attitude that needs to change in a season of conflict is this thought right here. It is not me, it is them. Lord, have your way with them. Cleanse your hands, purify your heart. And then what's he say? Then he gets really down to the core of us. Verse 9, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Why, why, why so? I mean, that's serious. Why, why? Because you're more grieved by your sin than theirs in the conflict. That's why he says that in verse 9. You come to the place that says, listen, the thing that breaks my heart the most is I'm more grieved by my sin than theirs. And then what? It's the last thing he says there is this humble yourselves. Why? Because you will not change apart from God's grace. And God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And so you have to ask a question, what do you want in the season of conflict? What do you desire more? If you're honest, to be right or God to be glorified? What do you want more? Do you want Christ to be honored or do you want control or peace or contentment or, or all these things that you're expecting your spouse to provide that God never designed? That Listen, your spouse, let me say it again, your spouse makes a crummy Savior. Just turn to them right now and tell them that. You are a crummy Savior. Would you just, no. What do I want more? To be right or for God to be glorified? Good news is this. Conflict will never go away. The whole story of the Bible is God is at conflict with a world of darkness. So it will never go on this side of eternity. But the good news is this, is that Christ has stepped into history and into our hearts, and now we have a Savior who fights for us in the midst of conflict. And he alone satisfies the affections of our heart. But the good news is, when he does, I don't expect anyone else to do what only Christ can do in my life. And so my question this morning is this, do you know him or do you just know about him? Would you bow your heads this morning? I want to ask you this morning a simple question. Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior or do you just know about him? You see, the person that knows about him agrees that he died on the cross. They agreed 
was buried and rose. They agree agree with all those things, but it's not a personal relationship with Christ. There's never been a time or a season in their life when they've surrendered their life to Jesus Christ and his lordship. They've never asked him to forgive of their sins. They've never committed to following him. And so if you're here this morning and you've come to the realization that you don't know Christ in a real and personal way. You just know some things about him. Listen, today is the day of salvation. Right now in your seat, right where you are, you can pray and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That is the foundation of resolving the conflict between you and God. God is holy and you are not, so that causes conflict. But Christ is the answer. Would you pray and receive Christ right now? Would you ask him to forgive you of your sins? Would you surrender your life to following him as your Lord and Savior? You can be saved right now, right in your seat this morning by faith. Maybe you're here and you are a Christian, but God has broken your heart this morning at the reality of conflict in your life. And you've justified it You've made peace with the fact that it's them, not you. God has broken your heart today. And you've come to a place and said, you know what? I'm more grieved by my sin than theirs. That is the pathway to repentance. That is the pathway to get grace flowing in your life again so that you can change and be like Christ. If you're here this morning, say, God has convicted me. And this morning, I can come to the place and say, I'm more grieved by my sin than theirs and I need God's grace to change it would you just raise up your hand this morning amen 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 anybody else amen amen anybody else this morning let me just pray for you this morning as your pastor God I, I pray this morning that the confession of people's hearts would be a true sign of humility in their life because we know that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And Lord, we, we desperately need your grace to change. And so, Lord, as we admit that and acknowledge that today, Lord, I pray that in, in your grace being poured out on our lives, God, that the first natural response would be to extend that grace to the other person. Extend that grace to our children, to our spouse, to our grandkids, to our, to our parents. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be honest and realize that relationships draw out of us what we don't see, but the good news is, is that Christ alone can satisfy the affections of our heart. And so, Lord, let us not leave today more resolved to fix relationships. Let us leave today deeper in love with Christ. Let us leave today with a deeper satisfaction because of what he's done for us. It's in him alone we find our identity. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you're here this morning and said, God really dealt with my heart and I don't know what to do next, uh, let me give you a couple things you can do to the next step for you. On the side of your worship folder is a little communication card and you can check off, hey, I prayed to receive Christ today. I want to get baptized next week. Uh, just some other things. Or maybe you have a prayer request. And so right there on the side of it, it's a place you can write in prayer requests. Uh, maybe you say, I want to meet with someone to help counsel with me. 
Uh, we do lots of counseling here. We have a counselor we work with. And so, uh, so just whatever it is, listen, the worst thing you can do is let God deal with your heart today and then just not, not follow up with that, all right? So indicate whatever your need is. Drop that in the offering plate when it comes by your way. If you would be encouraged, if someone would pray for you today, at the end of the service, we'll have some people down front, some of our deacons. They'll have a lanyard on. That's our prayer team. They would love to pray with you today. Okay, And so just let them pray with you. Let them encourage you in prayer today at the end of the service. So they'll be down here at the front as well. Well, I'm going to invite our ushers to come forward and uh, we'll receive our offering this morning. Give back to God what God has so graciously given to us. Well, one of the things you may have noticed today is that the, as the absence of uh, Pastor Kyle Actually, he's not been here this week or last week. He's the one that puts our videos together. And as I was walking up this morning, they said, hey, we don't have a video, and so you're going to have to get up and do like a comedy routine, or you're going to have to sing or something. Uh, but I decided to spare you from that. Um, but pray for Kyle. Uh, Kyle's been sick uh, last weekend. Uh, he got uh, high fever. Monday found out it was the flu. I think it was the respiratory strain of the flu. Uh, by Wednesday, he was back in the hospital with a severe asthma attack, and so he's on steroids and a nebulizer. And then uh, yesterday, we got the word that uh, he now has pneumonia. And so he is, uh, and his whole family has been sick. And so pray for Kyle and pray for Heidi. Pray for Roman this week, if you would think about it, that God would heal them, heal them quickly, and bring him back soon. Um, as we talk today about conflict and we talk about uh, partnering with you and what that looks like, uh, real quickly, I just want to let you know that we have an opportunity for you to meet with a biblical counselor. Uh, we partner with a biblical counselor named Dr. Ryerson. And Dr. Ryerson just does a little more of what you heard this morning, where he opens up God's Word. Uh, because God's Word, we believe, has real answers to real problems experienced by real people that produce real pain. God's Word, we believe, strongly has the answers to that very practically as you saw preached this morning. And so we want to continue that conversation with you. Uh, you can speak with me after the service. You can email me and we'll put you in touch confidentially with him. If you are our, if you hear the sound of my voice today, it means you're probably a regular attender or a member here. And his services are free of charge as we partner together uh, to grow through the power of the gospel. And so if you would honor us by uh, sending me an email, my email is on the back of the worship folder. We'd be uh, thrilled to put you in touch. Uh, as Pastor Brad said, we have a prayer team uh, that will be here right after the service. Don't walk out of here today if you're carrying a burden that you need somebody to pray with. Sometimes we don't even know the words to pray. The Bible says the Holy Spirit can offer prayers on our behalf. And it's always I'm always so grateful when I can come around a, a brother or sister and have them pray for me with me. And so would you give us that honor to do that with you this morning? Well, I hope you have a wonderful day. I hope that you've grown as you've been exposed to God's word. Have a great week and we'll see you again here soon.